You are listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM. KZYX Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting Listener-Supported Community Radio. We're also found on Facebook. And today we are broadcasting from the Redwood Coast Senior Center in Fort Bragg. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Today is a special day for me, not just because Phil Worf is the Fifth Friday guest, but because I started the show five years ago this month. I thought that it would run for less than a year and Hillary would be elected and I would get involved in something else. How wrong can you get? Who'd have thunk that a game show host with limited intelligence who couldn't read more than a paragraph at a time and no four-year plan or three or two or even five minutes for a plan would be elected and screw up the world as badly as this orange Cheeto seems to have done. I've mentioned this before. I helped elect four Republicans to the presidency, but certainly not this lying piece of crud. Did Putin help Trump get elected in an underhanded way? Probably. Did people who ran against Trump in the primaries and exhibit their disdain for Trump suddenly hop aboard the Trump train and kiss his fat ass repeatedly? The most egregious example of this is Lindsey Graham, senator from South Carolina. During the primary season, Lindsey exhibited nothing but contempt for Trump. Then Trump was the GOP candidate, and then he was the president. I shouldn't spend all this time ranting. I ought to let Phil do some of his own. I have a list of about 14 things we're going to get into today. Uh, but before we get into them, I would like to introduce Phil Worf, who is the uh, the political science professor at Mendocino College, a longtime friend of the show, and the Fifth Friday regular guest. So let me introduce Phil Worf to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Bob. Good morning. So the first item on the agenda is is the Biden-Harris win. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Biden-Harris win was a big, obviously, for Democrats. Um, you know, and uh, Biden, actually, it's interesting to me that, uh, obviously, the number of votes was much higher total. Um, so there was a, real, a great deal of mobilization on both sides. But um, Biden really sort of ran up the score on Trump quite a bit, um, won by, I think, ultimately about 7 million votes, which is about uh, twice as much, I believe, as, as uh, Hillary Clinton defeated Trump by uh, nationwide. So talking about a pretty, uh, pretty big uh, gap there. And so, um, you know, so they, the Democrats were very, uh, very positive result for them at the presidential level. Um, the House elections, though, not 
not so positive for the Democrats. Um, the expectation, uh, Bob, was that the Democrats would pick up maybe 15, 17 seats, as what most of the experts were saying. But it turns out, I think there's still one race that's still left to be called. But there's about, uh, let's see, the, the Democrats lost 13 seats uh, so far, um, <laughs> maybe one more. And so they got 222 to the Republicans, 212 at the moment. Uh, so that's, um, you know, they did not do nearly as well as they thought. They thought they would win about 15, 17 and lost about uh, 13 seats. So, um, so it's a really interesting question as to, you know, why, why did this happen? Um, but let's talk about the Senate, too, for a second. So in the Senate, the Democrats also, uh, they did, they did well. Um, they did well basically because of those two big runoff races in Georgia, which is amazing. Uh, if you think about how, um, strongly Republican and conservative Georgia tends to be. Um, so uh, Trump certainly didn't help his uh, candidates uh, down the ballot, but they, uh, there was a good bit of ticket splitting, I guess. Ticket splitting when you vote for one party for one office, usually for the presidency, and then other, uh, or the governor or something, and then, you know, for other uh, members of other parties or candidates from other parties, um, you know, multiple parties down the ballot. So ticket splitting certainly happened here, um, and the Democrats did uh, benefit from from that in terms of uh, the vote against Trump, but also, uh, you know, the Republicans showed pretty well at the congressional level. So, you know, they Democrats expected to flip several different, um, you know, seats that did not happen in Maine, for example, and um, let's see, North Carolina with Cal Cunningham and Joni Ernst pulled her race out in Iowa. Um, so those were big losses for the Democrats, and uh, it's not clear exactly what happened. It turned, you know, at the last, uh, you know, not exactly what happened, but we do know that uh, there's a few problems in sort of understanding it these days, which is that and the primary one is um, the 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 sort of the nature of modern polling, which is that uh, right now it's not particularly uh, successful in being extremely accurate in a lot of elections, which is what we've been used to over the past you know twenty, thirty, forty years, uh, and you know there's a big change here in terms of how. Um, people are getting public opinion um, uh, responses. We know the telephone doesn't work uh, anymore nearly as well as it did. So if you're doing that, that's a problem. If you're using an online panel, um, you're recruiting the panel is an issue. So, you know, and this is um, this has happened since 2016. There just hasn't been a way for uh, polling firms, for the most part, to really uh, understand. Uh, and what's happening and to make good predictions about the outcome of the election. I mean, a lot of it has to do with their assumptions about party and about turnout. It also could be that, um, you know, Trump voters uh, and some voters are less likely to want to tell you what they're going to do uh, explicitly. So, you know, a number of different reasons why, you know, this might have been good for Democrats at the national, at the national or presidential level, but a little bit tougher uh, at the at the local level. Um, but then again, uh, you, sh- you could also uh, look at it this way. I mean, uh, Biden won the national popular vote by 51, just a little over 51 percent, uh, and the Democrats got 50 and a half percent of votes in the uh, House elections. So one would say they did um, just about as well as, as Biden did. Uh, but, um, you know, the big, big story is the two Senate wins in Georgia. And so I think... Um, that's going to obviously fundamentally change the the Senate already has. I mean, McConnell's no longer the majority leader. That's going to be uh, Charles Schumer. Uh, not clear exactly what the rules are going to look like, um, but I think they're going to try to do a power-sharing deal just like was done earlier. 
uh, in, in the beginning of the tw- uh, 21st century. I think that was in 2000, a little later than the beginning, but um, it was in the, during the Bush administration. So lots of potential reasons why we don't we have, we we no longer have a really uh, excellent understanding of uh, voting behavior based on polling but um you know there uh, so so it's not clear exactly what was uh, wrong with the predictions but democrats did not do as well uh, in the house as they they thought they would they would do so i think that's a there's a pretty interesting story there so here's a question for you mm-hmm. uh McConnell is not a person who plays well with others. So although he is now the minority leader, that doesn't mean he's going to stop playing games. Well, I think that's true. I mean, um, McConnell famously said in 2009 that his only goal for the next four years, when, after Obama was elected, was to make sure that Obama was a one-term president. Uh, so, so he signaled very clearly and very early that his uh, goal and interest was not to cooperate with um, you know, Democrats to uh, create you know, good policy outcomes that was just mainly to benefit Republicans at the upcoming election. And of course, every, uh, you know, every member of Congress and every party leader, um, certainly thinks that way. But, um, just the idea that there would be no, uh, willingness to, uh, even negotiate with the president or come out or try to develop, uh, mutual solutions really, really, um, perhaps unprecedented. Um, so it didn't work the first time around, but, um, He's, I think he's going to adopt the same strategy with uh, Biden is just to do as much as uh, possible to make sure that Biden gets no legislative victories at all. And that's really an unfortunate um, approach. Uh, the, one of the big questions here, you know, is uh, the filibuster. And so, you know, one of, one of the things that um, McConnell and the Republicans want to do is to keep the filibuster. It has been the filibuster, meaning that, um, uh, you would, it's, it's possible for one senator to object to a piece of legislation, and unless you can get 60 members, three-fifths of the Senate, to shut them down and move ahead, then basically a piece of legislation is killed. This was um, done on all kinds of different things before. Um, the main one that really became an issue was, you know, the it was about judges and and judge uh, judicial appointments because they're so important. Um, and so, when uh, the Democrats, when they were in the Senate uh, prior to the uh, McConnell era, uh, they wanted to, um, you know, appoint as many judges as possible. And obviously, the Republicans, uh, you know, would like not to appoint many uh, judges that have a more of a, uh, sort of a liberal liberal approach on the bench. And uh, so. Um, you know, so the so-called nuclear option, right, was to eliminate the filibuster on uh, judicial appointments, and that's what the Democrats had to do in order to get some, uh, you know, rammed a lot of appointments through. Um, McConnell, uh, I think, in the latest term in the tr- during the Trump administration, was able to actually get a. Uh, there was a lot of vacant positions still available, and and Trump uh, Trump loyalists were, uh, you know, were inserted into. A majority of the uh, now make up a majority of the federal bench uh, at the the uh, lower level. So, um, you know, really a big deal the filibuster. And so now the question for the Democrats is: um, we know that you know that that's sort of off the table now. We know that the, the judicial nominations is not an issue for the filibuster. Uh, but what about regular legislation that's still there? So any kind of you know regular um, uh, legislative 
you know, bills or outcomes, uh, uh, I, those can still be filibustered. And so the big question now is do you use the so-called uh, nuclear option on the filibuster for uh, regular legislation, the filibuster, um, you know, still there. And McConnell, um, you know, the, each, the Senate is, is interesting because they have to come up with a set of rules at the beginning of each term. In the House, it's much more straightforward. The House Speaker and her people basically do whatever they want in terms of setting up the rules. And they can change the rules on each piece of legislation, which is great, <laughs> great power to have. But in the Senate, you have to have that rules agreement right up at the beginning. And so that has to be hammered out. Well, you got 50, you know, 50 Republicans, uh, 50 uh, Democrats. And so if you want to create a rules package that the other side doesn't like, well, you have to make sure that you can keep all of your members, if you're the Democrats, for example, right now, who are in charge because of the tie-breaking vote of the Vice President Kamala Harris. So um, you have to make that agreement right up front. And a couple of Democratic senators have indicated that they're not interested in eliminating the filibuster on regular pieces of legislation. And so... Effectively, that means the Republicans are going to be able to keep, unless unless the Democratic leadership is able to convince those uh, couple, uh, Joe Manchin and uh, Kirsten Sinema, uh, unless the Democratic leadership is able to convince them to change their minds, there will still be the filibuster on legislation. And you know the uh, it, you could you could have a different perspective on this, right, based on your political party. But I think the the unfortunate part of this is that it's really going to be difficult then for. Um, the Biden administration to you know get a lot of a lot accomplished in terms of what they'd like to do uh, even things like um, rolling out, rolling out more vaccine and more stimulus I mean it's possible that uh, we won't see any more stimulus because you'll have to get Republican support for it we know that there was very little Republican support for stimulus uh, when Obama was president in 2009 um, and so you know they'll try to uh, I think uh, I think that uh, McConnell will try to shut that down again so Biden gets very few um, if any, legislative victories. Except, so. except that uh, the Democrats have another arrow in their quiver, and that is reconciliation. They can pass yeah. a bill with only 51 votes. It, could you explain how that's done? Yeah, so the reconciliation process, you're exactly right, is the way to get around the filibuster, and it can be done on certain kinds of legislation. And this was done for uh, the Obamacare legislation, which ultimately had to be done through a reconciliation process. And you're right, all you need is a basic, uh, all you need is a majority or a plurality to to uh, to get it. You don't have to have the the 60 votes to shut down the filibuster and then vote on the legislation. So there are three reconcil. There there are up to three reconciliation bills per year. That's what's permitted. And they have to relate to spending, uh, revenue, the federal debt limit, something like that. And so if Senate Democrats can roll up a package together that has, you know, that that is focused on that and they can get this in there or they can get uh, one of their big policy priorities in there, then they can do it with 51 votes. But the thing is. The problem with this is if it's going to be economic in nature, that's great, but it's very difficult to tie things like, you know, voting rights and the environment and education and health care to this reconciliation process. So the filibuster is still going to be, um, you know, a big issue in terms of, you know, getting some accomplishments or, or you know, seeing what, uh, you know, productively working um, across the aisle in, in the Senate. So it's going to be a big challenge. Uh, because of the filibuster, obviously, and reconciliation could could help out some in terms of uh, getting around that, but it's not a not a silver bullet. And so, you know, for 
For me, I mean, I think that um, I've always just like the filibuster, no matter which side you're on. I think if, you have, if you're in a democratic institution, a majority ought to be able to prevail uh, rather than having, you know, 40% of the, the body be able to stop whatever they want. And, uh, you know, in a, in a previous era when there was more uh, cooperation and conciliation and uh, the threats were shared, the, the apparent threats to, to um, the country were, were shared ideas, well, that was different. But uh, it's a, it's a, you know, it, we, things have changed. Things have changed a lot, and I think that um, because of the inability of the two parties to work across the aisle, that uh, Biden and the Democrats are not going to get uh, much done unless they can go after the filibuster and 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 uh, get rid of it. I don't think that's going to happen. So, but we'll we'll see. But there's right? a, another big aspect here, uh, mm-hmm. and that is that it used to be. If you were going to do a filibuster, and it was, I think, the Jimmy Stewart movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, right? where he had, a, had you actually stand there and speak for as long as he wanted to delay the bill. Well, today, it's just a threat of a filibuster, stops everything in its tracks, and then the other side has to come up with the 60 votes uh, to kill Well, that's a... That's a really good point, uh, Bob, and that's uh, part of why we see the incredible rise in the number of filibusters uh, since so early in the 21st century, uh, because you don't have to do that anymore, right? If you're Strom Thurmond from South Carolina and you're um, filibustering this, the, the Civil Rights Act or the voting, I think it was the Civil Rights Act, 1964, that... Um, you know, you have to literally hold the floor and speak until, and, you know, until they can get enough votes to make you be quiet and sit down. Well, now you just file papers with the clerk of the Senate, and every, so you don't have to actually go through that process, which requires effort and, you know, so forth. And so I think that's a big reason you're exactly right. And, you know, the Congress should, should look at maybe changing that as well if they, um, as, a, as a possible alternative to eliminating the filibuster altogether. Um, but I think Democrats are going to be, you know, just because you don't put it in the Senate rules at the beginning of the term doesn't mean that it can't be eliminated, um, you know, later if it's not mentioned. So I think one of the things that Democrats might or, or want to do now, based on that um, earlier agreement uh, when there was a tie in the Senate, uh, 2000, uh, 2001, I guess it was. Yes, it was. Right. Yeah. So there would be no filibuster um it was not mentioned at all in the in the rules, and so if that's the case, the Democrats could come back later and eliminate the filibuster. And I think if you're talking about some of this legislation, it's going to be hard, especially let's say um, civil rights legislation or that kind of thing. It's going to be really hard for the Democrats to uh, go to Democratic voters and say, you know, we're not, we can't do this because of the filibuster. And uh, there'll be a lot of pressure, not just on Democrats in general, but also on those specific Democrats to, to change their mind on this. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's, we're not, uh, whatever they make it, whatever decision they make right now in terms of the rules package uh, could change down the line. And um, uh, Joe Manchin, uh, the senator from West Virginia, not known as a civil rights state, um, that wouldn't be a trigger for him to want to get rid of the filibuster. Uh, Arizona is changing, but uh, Kristen Cinema seems to be a sort of uh, a more conservative Democrat in Arizona. So she's not going to change that easily either. What do you think might be the triggers for them to want to get rid of the filibuster and absolutely put Mitch McConnell uh, in the 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 minority for sure. 
Right. Well, you know, ultimately, Congress is parochial, and I think if there's uh, something that uh, Manchin uh, believes is essential for West Virginia or critical or something that, uh, you know, that's similar for Arizona, um, you know, they, they might change their, their minds about it. But, um, you know, sure, I mean, you could say that West Virginia is not a, not a hotbed of civil rights activism, but um, it's, you know, he needs, his, he needs his Democratic voters. I mean, Manchin is going to run for re-election in 2004. I think that's, uh, sorry, 2024. I think that's part of the reason he's taking the position um, he has right now. But again, I think if you go back to issues, um, if something big comes up on, you know, civil rights, uh, and something big comes up on education or health care, something where it's really in the interest of West Virginians and they're not able to get something through because of Republican obstructionism, perhaps he'll change his mind. Um, you know, in the House, they can change, the Speaker has the ability to change the rules uh, on any piece of legislation. So if, as long as they, there's some flexibility in the rules package, it's possible that, you know, the Senate Democratic leadership could do the same thing, not on each piece of legislation, but sort of change their approach to the filibuster. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if Manchin would be uh, ever interested in doing that. It's kind of a, I'm sure Democrats are very, <laughs> very uh, upset about this and, and besides themselves. Uh, but, but, but what can you do? I don't know. Well, you know, I have a theory that, uh, and this is what I would uh, fault Barack Obama for. Uh, there were a number of lawbreakers in the Bush administration, and yet Obama's view was, let's look forward and not back. So then what happened is that any of these people that under normal circumstances would probably have been uh, tried and convicted were just let slide. Well, therefore, you get the Trump administration, well, he do, he wouldn't care whether it was pursued back by Obama or not. But the other people in his, in his administration felt that, well, they're not really going to pursue it, so I'll just do whatever the hell I want. And then uh, we have where we are now. Uh, so uh, what I think is a problem, hold on. What I think is a problem uh, is that uh, the people who have done bad things uh, are just going to continue to do them unless uh, there is punishment for the Republican office holders who abetted the seditionists. Uh, I think that's absolute. It must happen. And what I would think we should be doing is creating a commission, uh, finding out all of the, uh, the things that were done, get the evidence for that, and then prioritize. I don't think we should uh, prosecute all of the wrongdoers, but where we have the most evidence and where they have committed such egregious crimes that they should be pursued, um, I think then it should go ahead. And it should be from the office of the attorney general. Uh, Biden shouldn't get involved in this at all. Uh, and it would depend upon what Merrick Garland thinks should be done. Well, I mean, I think that's a that's a really good point. I I, I believe it's been a mistake uh, for you know a mistake for Obama to come in and say you know we're we're going to look ahead and not look backward. I think, uh, and that sort of gives you know the, uh, establishes a way of thinking that okay, well, we could sort of push the line here and nothing's going to happen to us down the road. And that message has to be um, you know squashed. And uh, and I don't uh, so I think that they. 
Democrats in, in Congress should go after investigating uh, some of this uh, stuff, not just members of Congress, but some of the other things that occurred during the Trump administration. And if there's been wrongdoing, that those people should be identified. And, and maybe it's a good idea to, to identify a couple of bigger players and, and go after a couple of big fish just to have a, a nice, uh, you know, uh, the media element to it to really indicate how serious it is. Um, the commission, um, that's, a, that's an okay idea. Um, I don't have a problem with it. One of the things that's interesting to me is if you look at the um, what happened at the Capitol is we, we still really don't, we're still not getting a lot of information about um, what members of Congress knew about it and how they might have been involved in it. So I think there's still a lot of questions to answer. But if Biden's you know, Biden has said, you know, he wants a unity message. And, um, you know, if you look at the the programming from the night of the inauguration that was on, you know, that they had put together, the Biden team, um, a lot of it was focused on that. And I think, sure, you want to repair those uh, those rifts and you want to do as much as possible to get the two sides to work together. Uh, but at the, the same time, I think it's unrealistic to believe that that's going to happen. And I also think that you really do have to go after some of the people who have violated the law um, or, um, you know, if if it's just ethic violations, at least to censure them. But in terms of these uh, members of Congress, we don't know exactly, like Lauren uh, Boebert, for example, of Colorado and, and um and Gosar and Biggs of Arizona, we don't know the extent to which they were. We knew that we know that some of them were involved in organizing Trump's event on January 6th. We don't know the extent to which they either provided information or access or what have you to people who had a clear intent to do wrong uh, and how much they knew about that. So it will be really interesting to see what comes out of that and what the Biden administration wants to do with it. And it should come from the attorney general and not the president. And finally, at the very end of the Trump administration, I think uh, Attorney General Bill Barr finally got that message and decided that he was uh, he was uh, going to establish his independence at the last minute. So so that was good. But yeah, I think the I think the Justice Department really has a lot of work to do. And the idea that it, we're just going to go, oh, you know, it's OK, let's move forward, I think is a is it's a mistake. And uh, what I find interesting is that uh, I had this question I wrote down here. What is wrong with the Republican Party? Has Trump eaten their brains? Well, I mean, you could put it that way, I suppose. But no, I mean, uh, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you look at someone like uh, Lauren Boebert of Colorado, and she's got these very fringe extremist, um, you know, uh, views about guns and uh, about, um, you know, uh, QAnon and things like that. And really someone who's not particularly stable, I think. Um, and think about someone like Marjorie um, Taylor Greene, who's actually from Southern California, and, you know, she has the Oath Keepers coming to her events to provide, you know, quote-unquote security for her and this kind of thing. I don't know if you've seen the video of her, like, harassing um, uh, Parkland school shooting survivor David Hogg about his um, effort to, um, you know, seek more um, gun control. And she's really, she's really, she's really not all there, I think. And it's surprising to me that the, 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 the partisanship in the U.S. is so strong right now and so significant that these kind of people could get elected simply based on their party affiliation and maybe the fact that people aren't paying that close of attention. And, and that's really scary. And so um, should, the, should the Democrats, um, sh- should there be an effort to remove some of these people from Congress if it's determined that they were involved in January 6th and more than just sort of organizing the Trump event? I think it's certainly 
something that should be considered, and if nothing else, um, they should be censured by the House uh, and, and by the Senate where, where appropriate. Um, I don't. You're not going to. You're not going to get removal because the Republicans are not going to go along with it. And I think that's just as big of a problem as these candidates who are kind of a little crazy. Um, is that the leadership of the Republican Party has now bought 100 percent into the Trump wing of the party uh, because of the pressure that they put at the grassroots level? And this is going to lead the um, yeah the, the Republican Party is not going to uh, benefit from this in the long term. The thing the Republican Party is going to continue to benefit from is that we have a two-party system, and they're not going anywhere. And they have a lot of structural advantages in the system, which we could talk about. And so I think the idea that some people think the Republicans are going to crash and burn, um, they might win fewer elections. It might be tougher for them to get back on track, but they're not going to go anywhere. Uh, I'm pretty confident. Um, I wonder what you think about that, Bob. Well, uh, you say censure. Isn't that like saying to the miscreants, bad boy, bad girl, you shouldn't do that? Yeah, kind of a slap on the wrist. Um, I, I agree, but it's imp- it's important historically to make sure that that happens. It's important for the public to know what um, you know about these people. It's important for their voters to know more about them if it, if it matters to them. But yeah, I mean, it has no real effect. Uh, but are you going to be able to get anything more significant um, you know, given the breakdown in the, the in the House and Senate? I don't I don't think so, and that's unfortunate. Well, I think that uh, the FBI and other investigative agency uh, agencies are digging pretty deep. And uh, as a result, a couple of uh, elected Democrats have let slip the fact that there is evidence that's going to come out that shows some elected members of Congress have abetted the seditionists. Now, that should be enough for expulsion. It should. I mean, if there, if it's determined that um, you know there there is suggestion by some Democratic lawmakers uh, and others in the Capitol that these that a couple of I don't know how many, but a, uh, you know one or two or a few members of the Republican Caucus were giving people tours of the Capitol uh, prior to January sixth, when tours of the Capitol have been basically shut down since last March, um, and the question is, what exactly were they showing them and why? And, you know, the response from these these Republican officials is, you know, uh, we were being inaugurated, um, you know, we were visiting the office, we weren't being inaugurated, we were, yeah, we were visiting the office, and we were showing my family and all this stuff, so so who knows. Um, but I think that, um, there, I think the FBI has 400 different cases open here. Uh, I think that they are definitely looking at some of these members of Congress. M- my concern is that um, they will find out some information that would, would indicate that they should push further into finding out what's going on here, and the Biden administration or the Democrats will sort of lose their nerve and not want to push this all the way. Um, and, uh, you know, I, that would be, I, I agree with you, Bob, that would be a big mistake um, this time around. But particularly if you find that they're showing uh, people the tunnels and corridors under the Capitol that connect the Senate and House uh, buildings to the Capitol. Um, you know, if they're doing that, then, I mean, that's seditious behavior, to be frank. And so I think a lot of Republican officials and, um, and others have a lot to answer for here. Um, so really what the Democrats have is two years or a year and a half to accomplish something, anything, so that when they run in two years and uh, there are a number of Senate seats that uh, have been um, with it, 
the current office holder, a Republican, has retired. That should make it easier because when there is an incumbent, uh, that's a harder issue to overcome than if the seat is open. So uh, there is Burr. Uh, there is uh, I think Ron Johnson is thinking about it in Wisconsin. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are a couple of others. So uh, the Democrats, if they show that they have done something, that they have helped Americans, all Americans, not just the richest Americans, then maybe they can pick up some of those seats. Well, maybe they could, but I, I think the reason this is the reason why McConnell's main objective of the next 18 months or two years or <laughs> four years or eight years is to make sure that um, Biden gets as few victories as possible and Democrats get as little accomplished so that they have fewer things to run on in the next election. Uh, it worked out pretty well for him um, under Obama. Republicans did really well in the 2010 elections. Now, I'll, I'll, usually there's a, a midterm advantage for the party that's not in the White House, but still very very big um, wins on that side. Uh, but um, I guess it depends, you know, sure. I mean, if, when there's incumbents and when there are incumbents running, it's much more difficult to defeat them. I mean, incumbents win re-election to the House and Senate 85 or 90 percent of the time. Yes, <laughs> so that's true. When you, when you have those open seats, it really matters. And I guess it depends on where they are. If it's Johnson and Wisconsin, well, Democrats have a decent shot at a statewide election in Wisconsin and even in North Carolina. So, uh, but the Democrats are also defending a couple of uh, seats that are going to be uh, heavily challenged, like Joe Manchin's seat and like uh, John Tester in Montana and some others. Um, so uh, there, I haven't looked very closely at what all those, um, you know, those big contests are going to be in 2022 or 2024. But, uh, you know, it's the um, Democrats are going to want to find something to, to run on. Republicans are going to want to make sure that that's not the case. And so I think that's going to be the big conflict over the next uh, 18 months or so to see if that happens. And I think the Democrats will be willing to use regu- um, the reconciliation process if they have to. I mean, if that's if Republicans' in, uh, goal is you know entirely obstruction, which based on McConnell's historical behavior, it may well be, um, I think it's justified then to use the reconciliation process as much as possible. Well, you can um, only do it once in a fiscal year. Well, you can do it, I think, um, you can do it three times. The Senate has the ability to do it three times. Really? In a, in a fiscal year? Yeah. Um, yeah. So three reconciliation bills per year is possible uh, via the Senate. Usually they only they don't do that. Um, they'll do one and roll it all up together. Um, so that's typically what's happened. Yeah, so... Um, but in terms of the Senate, uh, if if Democrats are able to pick up a seat or two in the Senate, well, that will really change the calculation uh, significantly, and uh, we'll have to see uh, in 2022 and 24. But uh, McConnell was quite successful last time under the first uh, two years of the Obama administration, so uh, he, he knows how to do it, and maybe he'll be able to, to do that uh, this time uh, as well. And that's the big knock on the Democrats, right? They just, you know, they, they just don't uh, have the kind of... Uh, uh, you know, killer instinct that the, that the Republicans do when it comes to this sort of thing. Let me reintroduce you. You're listening to Politics, A Love Story. I'm your host, Bob Bashansky, and with me today is Phil Worf, uh, professor of political science at Mendocino College. He's a frequent guest on the show, especially on the fifth Friday of every month, which happens four times a year. And uh, today is the fifth Friday, so uh, Phil is with us. Um, One of the things I want to point out, though, is that you talked about the Senate just now and what McConnell is known to be able to do. So the question is, 
is Chuck Schumer strong enough to withstand Mitch McConnell? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, he's um, there. Um, different perspectives on how successful he's been as the uh, minority leader uh, in in the Senate. But uh, I think, you know, based on what I've seen in this initial sort of conflict over the filibuster, is that Schumer has made um, some very powerful public comments like, you know, McConnell's not going to get the filibuster and, you know, we're not going to do that and so forth, but is is he able to, to, uh, I mean, what, what can he promise and then fulfill in the Senate with, uh, you know, a hundred different, uh, you know, individual, uh, you know, guys who think they should be running the country. Uh, it's going to be tough for him. Um, but, um, I guess the, the Senate Democratic Caucus believes that he can, he can do it. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to assume that that's going to happen and, you know, uh, going forward, but, who, but who knows? I, I, I have not, uh, I don't, I don't get the idea that he's going to have a, an easy time, you know, sort of, sort of rolling over McConnell. That's for sure. And one of the things, though, that is occasionally puzzling to me is that in the whole list of uh, Democrats and Republicans who have been president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, not on uh, the pent, not in the penthouse, not on the fifth floor, not in the basement, not even in the first 10 sub basements. He is at the lowest point ever that you might consider for a person to have been at. And yet, all of these fawning, sycophantic Republicans, and as I said before, you know, I did help elect four Republican presidents. Uh, I can't imagine following this idiot uh, wherever he wants to go uh, and do it to such a point that they are endangering our representative democracy. This is a, just a terrible thing. Would they rather uh, a dictator came in? Would they feel more comfortable with that? Well, I guess they would retain their power. But how could you do that? Well, um, there there are a lot of uh, people and uh, and you know not just not just sort of uh, activists and regular people but but actually uh, elected officials as well who've really been uh, committed to the Trump agenda and to Trump himself as some kind of uh, I don't want to use I don't want to say it but like a savior okay uh, of the Republican Party or of, of a particular element of the Republican Party, but um, you know after the election there has been some disillusionment among some of Trump supporters. Um, and you know the fact that uh, they they expected him to you know uh, I guess march to the Capitol with them or something like that, or they expected him to you know to for for there to actually be a coup of some kind, uh, and they don't believe that he sort of carried that out. Um, so that may be people who are uh, don't think he was extreme enough. But there are others who now think that. Um, you know, they're they're doubling down on QAnon, but they also think that there's a big chunk of them who now uh, think that QAnon is, uh, you know, misled them, of of course, and that uh, Trump was, um, you know, sort of in it for himself and all this. So there's a lot of disillusionment, too. But I think that um, the main thing for this segment of the Republicans, this really conservative and mainly white supremacist segment, is they see that the country is changing, the Republican Party is the mechanism through which they would like to maintain as much power as possible. The Republican Party is able to win elections with less than a, po- a majority of the popular vote, so it's a pretty good vehicle for that. Um, but you have that, there's going to be that group that's committed and kind of going to continue with the Republicans because it's really, uh, as I was kind of getting at before, it's the only 
um, facilitator there is. I mean, the Republican Party is not going anywhere. Um, if it splits into two, well, you know, uh, it won't survive. And and so I think you're going to have to uh, deal with these Republicans. And um, you know, one hopes that at least some of the Trump coalition will become further disillusioned. Uh, and I think that will happen. But I, I don't believe that. You know, I think that the, the Lauren Boeberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the Republican Party are going to get a good deal of support um, going forward. And part of that is because of gerrymandering, right, Bob? I mean, hmm. you know, the, the way the districts are drawn in such a way that they're heavily Democratic or heavily Republican, and there's really no um, effective opposition. And that's another reason why we're sort of stuck in this partisan moment. Uh, that's not going to change anytime soon either, I don't believe. Uh, it's, uh, Republicans still have 30% of the state houses, and uh, they're very um, focused on this uh, particular effort to to, to um, limit, uh, you know, to to sort of go after <laughs> uh, to do voter suppression is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So so I think that um, you know these are there's some important issues here. Except there's one one aspect that many people forget about that for federal elections that's for federal office holders like members of Congress and the president. Congress gets to set the rules. So if H.R. 1 passes, what that does is it forces every state to have a nonpartisan commission do the redistricting for federal elections. If they want to do a different district uh, in their state for uh, state elections, they're perfectly, uh, it's a perfectly okay. But they don't have the right to determine if uh, Congress wants to step in to determine how the districts should be set up for federal elections. People have lost sight of this, but it's in the Constitution as to how that works. Well, um, it certainly is, and I, I, I guess Congress could sort of take that uh, and you know back a little bit and reestablish um, you know. Uh, more rules and more control from the federal level on that. We know that ju- the the um, the courts are no longer really going to get involved in a lot of this, right? Because uh, um, uh, after the the section two of the Civil Rights Act was uh, sort of gutted, basically by the Supreme Court, you see a lot of this kind of um, effort of uh, voter suppression has been quite successful. They'll take um, it back when it looks like Republicans are going to lose their hegemony. Well, maybe, maybe. I mean, but that's politics, right, Bob? I mean, you, you're going to do something if... Uh, it's, but the it's Supreme Court said that they don't want to get involved in politics, and yet they will. Well, okay, so you're, oh, you're saying the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, um, we'll see. Uh, I was really surprised that um, uh, they didn't take the bait on any of this stuff related to the to the 2020 election. Uh, but certainly one of the biggest impacts of the Trump, uh, that's the four years of the Trump presidency, is going to be those uh, justices that he was able to place on the Supreme Court, and they're going to be able to carry forward the conservative agenda pretty effectively for the next, you know, 30 years probably. Uh, so if, you, if you're a Republican and you're looking at, uh, you're upset about the election, you can always look back and be happy with the crop, new crop of Supreme Court justices, and they'll make it very difficult for people to actually pursue these kind of voting rights cases uh, in, in the courts, and, and that's unfortunate. But, um, you know, again, this is the focus of the Republican Party is to, is uh, it's be, it's becoming a race-based party in some ways, and um, going after voting rights is essential to maintaining uh, that dominance. Well, you know, we are halfway to passing H.R. 1. 
that's the all-encompassing bill, the first bill that the House passed after uh, the Democrats took a large majority. Uh, all it's waiting for now is for the Senate to pass it. Now, the House may have to rebring it up in order to get it to the Senate. But if that could be tacked on as a part of a reconciliation bill, uh, it could get done. Well, it could get done. Um, there would be a question of whether that's uh, something that could be attached to a reconciliation bill. If there's, uh, you know, it depends on whether there's any spending involved. I suppose they could they could figure out a way. But, yeah, I think it's... Um, uh, I think it's HR four this time around, but I mean, what's the you know what's the difference? The uh, but it does have a lot of really uh, important stuff in it that would change the way elections are done to improve voter participation, right? Um, making ele- even something as simple as making election day a holiday yeah. of some kind, but better registration, uh, eliminating voter purges, all this stuff really essential. But yes, can the, the House pass it last time? They'll pass it again. It, it seems clear. Uh, so what will happen in the Senate? Um, maybe it can stand on its own and get through the Senate with a Democratic majority. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I'm, I don't know. I really don't know if that's, if that's the case. But I think if the House passes it, it'll be really hard for the Republicans, uh, or really hard for the, the Democrats in the Senate to, to sort of look the other way on it. Uh, so there'll probably be a little uh, negotiation about the specifics and uh, some, some paring down of the proposals that are in it, you know, the provisions that are in it. So we uh, we haven't discussed this yet, but um, uh, Trump had uh, some of the most incompetent, inept uh, members of his cabinet and in his administration, real sleazy, uh, terrible people. And yet Biden seems to be putting in the kind of people we would expect a president to want in his administration. Well, I think we'll be we're we're sort of coming back to normal. I, uh, Biden is not going to be uh, running his uh, communications uh, program via Twitter. He's going to have real press briefings. So, you know, things are uh, things are going to get back to to more normal, and that and that's uh, that's really good uh, in a Biden administration. And um, you know, I think we should expect that that um, it's going to be more traditional, and I, you can see that from his uh, from his cabinet uh, appointments. Um, and you know, this is an, another reason why we um, need to go back and look at some of the things that Trump, ca- Trump cabinet appointees did, in particular the sort of acting and temporary um, personnel who were, uh, in, in many ways, just sort of personal uh, extensions of, of Trump. And so, we have seen sort of going back to normal for for more competency, I guess, uh, uh, in the areas where where the uh, the cabinet member is supposed to. To oversee, but um, the other thing too, I think is really interesting is that um, you know you're going to have a situation here where most likely you're going to have professionals that are going to do the job. They're not going to be involved in a bunch of uh, corruption. Likely, I mean, one of the things that was amazing about the Obama administration was there were no major uh, uh, investigation, non-political investigations of wrongdoing among Obama's administration, which is, um, I imagine we'll see something similar with Biden, which will be great. And I think not having Biden sort of running uh, the presidency via Twitter will sort of let things cool down a little bit. And, uh, you know, that'll be very positive. Well, uh, as you pointed out, Obama did not have anyone charged with any crime while in office, whereas you go back to Eisenhower, one of his uh, uh, close advisors accepted a Vicuña coat and didn't declare it. And so uh, 
I think he was charged with that. But if you look at every other president other than Obama, they all had people that were tried and convicted and went to jail. And uh, in Nixon's administration, there were 96 people uh, that were indicted, 46 who were convicted, and most of those went to jail. Whereas Obama is the startling uh, opposite. Not one person charged, not one person convicted, and he ran a pretty good administration. Yeah, and it's even more um, remarkable given the fact that a lot of what the Republicans were organized around during the Obama years was simply trying to stymie whatever Obama wanted. And certainly if they were able to, um, if there were some justified investigations, justification for some investigations of Obama uh, personnel, they would have they would have done that. I mean, we know the Benghazi thing was just um, mostly nonsense. Um, so they just didn't have much to, to work with. Um, <laughs> and which is it's really amazing. Um, so I think that um, you know if, Bama, if um, Biden's able to sort of maintain that, he'll be he'll be doing really well. Um, but it's not because Obama had um, you know it's not because they didn't investigate Obama. They really really uh, you know the Republicans in Congress are really hoping they could get something, but um, just never did. And it's really it's really quite amazing. Um, not just for you know, not just relative to Republican presidents, but to any president, um, as you mentioned, in the 20th century. Um, and we're and still talking about appointees to uh, a presidential uh, administration. Um, there are certain people that Trump uh, burrowed in, uh, supposedly on, on commissions or, uh, it, let's see, what would it be? Uh, places where they have a term and you can't just get rid of them. But Biden is going to stretch it and try to get rid of all of those people that Trump tried to embed and cause problems for his administration going down the road. Well, I mean, I think there's a number of those. One of the things that I um, examples that I think is really crazy is that um, the way that the Trump administration has sort of assaulted the uh, Postal Service uh, Board of Directors or Governors, what it's called, whatever it's called, um, with these sort of um, really partisan, uh, you know, um, conservative um, advocates. And you can only, uh, you can, uh, and this happened, you know, in the middle of 2020, so one would have to suspect that some of that had to do with uh, the idea that there was going to be a lot of these mail ballots and, um, you know, so there was some question about that, but I think um, we also know that a big part of it is, um, you know, there's a desire on the right to to privatize the postal service, and so it raises the question of, are they going to not do as good a job as they could in order to create a, you know, a, a crisis or something like that? And when you have to think about that when you're considering, um, you know, appointees to these kind of positions, it's really uh, a shame. And yes, that's one of the examples of, that Biden wants to go after these guys and just get rid of all of them and and start over. Uh, same thing with things like the Federal Communications Commission and all this kind of stuff. Those things are going to be tougher. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it'll, it'll be interesting to see if Biden can, A, get away with it, um, at, you know, in terms of politically, but also um, I'm sure there will be challenges legally, and will, will they be able to do that as well? Um, I'm, I'm, I question whether that will happen if there, are, if there are legally required terms and appointment periods and that sort of thing, unless there's some good behavior technicality or that kind of thing that they can use. Um, but, yeah. We're getting close to the end now, uh, and I wanted to point out there was at least one um, 
individual or two that were part of one of these committees or commissions, uh, and they said to uh, Biden's representative, well, we'll we still have time left. And uh, they said to this, these people, well, you could uh, fill out your term in Alaska or something like that. And they took retirement rather than try to fight it. And he also said, and you can take us to court. Well, you mean uh, you're talking about the the, uh, Trump administration's officials not really being willing to work with the incoming Biden administration? Uh, Not only that, their reason for being there was to be in opposition and to undermine them uh, with whatever they could do. And uh, I think that they didn't want to fight it because if they went to court... Because Trump appointed them only days before he left office, that could probably be shown as to be uh, not a good thing for anybody. Okay, so we're uh, near the end of the hour. I want to reintroduce you. You've been listening to Phil Worf, political science professor at Mendocino College, our fifth Friday guest and occasional other day guest. Uh, you're listening to Politics, a Love Story, and I am your host, Bob Bushansky. The next Fifth Friday comes about, I think, in April or something like that. In any event, uh, we have three more this year. There are four in every calendar year. Uh, and I want to thank you, Phil, for being on, for going over these things. And I think that what we try to do on this show, and you and I on our Fifth Friday, is to let the public understand how things work, because I firmly believe what goes on in Washington or in any kind of political thing, we only, as the people, only get to understand one-tenth because there's so much that goes on under the surface. So I want to thank you, and I uh, will see you uh, next week or in three weeks, uh, whichever it works out. So thanks, Phil. Thanks, Bob. Okay, so we've got just a few seconds, and I I want to thank you all for uh, tuning in. And I want to suggest that anybody has anything to say, good or bad, a suggestion or question, uh, write to dj at kzyx.org. Have in the subject line P-A-L-S. And I want to thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willetson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. Everything is heightened now, it's looking so much brighter now I was lost and now I'm found, fell off the merry-go-round I was in the politics, obsessed with things I couldn't fix Kissing bigger with a fist